Travis, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start off with your background? Where'd you start off, the arc of your career so far, and what you're doing now? Yeah. Uh, well, so I started at the earliest stages. I'm a, I'm a child of the federal government. Um, dad worked in the United States Senate. Mom uh, worked for uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And so uh, service was just sort of instilled in me from the beginning. And I went to college, studied business, uh, and then somehow, you know, uh, and ended up in politics, had an internship in Congress with uh, Representative Henry Waxman, who um, the, I, stayed in, I stayed in touch with the team, um, uh, went and worked on a Senate campaign in, in 2004 for the then uh, minority leader, Tom Daschle, and we lost, and John Kerry lost, and all the Democrats lost, and <laughs> took a bit of a hiatus, did a master's degree, and then uh, made my way back to Washington, um, ultimately landed uh, on the Hill in 2009 and um, worked for Congressman Waxman again, who was the then chair and then ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Committee and stayed with him for six years. Um, uh, ultimately was his legislative director towards the end. Uh, he retired in, in 2014, um, but uh, wonderful, wonderful member of Congress. I, I would still probably be there if he hadn't retired, but um, uh, the you know devotion to the institution remains and, and here we are. So what did you do after after you left Waxman's office? So I, I turned the key um, on the office, uh, locking it up on January 2nd, um, 20, 2020, uh, or excuse me, 2015. And on January 3rd, I, I pulled out my laptop and started working on the uh, concept note for, for Tech Congress. So I've been running um, Tech Congress uh, literally since the day, uh, day after... Uh, I ended with uh, Representative Waxman. Excellent. So what is Tech Congress? Can you kind of introduce it and uh, how did it start off and how has it evolved and what is it now? Yeah. So in its simplest form, we recruit and place computer scientists, engineers, and other technologists to serve as tech policy advisors to members of Congress and congressional committees. So this is everything from privacy and AI and disinformation to cybersecurity, open data, um, future of transportation. Um, and our goal is to be a pipeline for tech talent into, into Congress. Our, our express goal is to convert fellows into full-time staffing roles in order to fundamentally upskill the institution. Um, Congress, when I left Congress, there were, there were very few technologists and I started Tech Congress because I, I needed it. Um, I found myself in 2012 and 2013 really underwater on a handful of tech issues. We were voting on cybersecurity bills. Um, and I had to make a vote recommendation to the congressman. Um, it was a, there were controversial bills. And the vote recommendation hinged on whether we should be giving companies um, liability protection if they accidentally shared um, personally, identifiable, personally identifiable information um, on their users with the federal government when sharing that information. Uh, so in order to make a, a, an informed vote recommendation, I had to understand what was PII and what did it mean to anonymize data. And what I found was that there wasn't anyone in Congress that could answer those questions for me. Um, now, by contrast, some other sectors are pretty well represented in Congress. When we wrote the Affordable Care Act, for example, in, in 2009 and 2010 on our health subcommittee out of a staff of 15, three individuals had practiced medicine. Uh, so why were why why is the health sector represented in Congress, but the tech sector is not? It's in part through fellowship programs. So um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is our our gold standard, um, uh, has been bringing in medical professionals into Congress since 1974. And so, um, I, you know, seeing this gap, experiencing this gap, knowing the tech tech was only gonna become more relevant over the years, uh, decided to take on um, the RWJF uh, fellowship model, but for tech. And um, you know, our express goal, the good news about Congress is it's a tiny place. Um, and we can, we, can, we can get into that a little bit more, um, but you know, in order to upskill the institution, we believe you should have a technologist touching an issue as it moves through the legislative process at each stage. And so our goal is to get enough technologists into Congress so that when a bill is being drafted, when a committee is being considering a bill, when it's being 
you know, voted on in the floor. There's a technologist that's sitting at the table that's part of that negotiations. So um, we think with 60, 60 technologists in Congress that you can achieve that threshold. And so our goal is to is to be the pipeline for that for that number of technologists. So when you send people to Congress, it's really as a policy advisory role or a policy role versus developing technology for Congress itself. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Though there is an exception, we we launched a kind of parallel program during COVID, which which we can talk about. But um, but yes, they are by and large. They are we're taking people, um, you know, that built product in the private sector, and we're having them. we're having them take that expertise and say, okay, you know, I was working at Twitch um, uh, at the li- on the live streaming platform, or, uh, you know, I was working on Google on the ads team. What does that mean for how we should think about content moderation, for how we think about um, a federal data privacy standard? Um, so they're taking their skills and they're applying them to the, um, the tech challenges of the day. And typically, is that through a member office or is it through committee? We know where do you see the impact um, of their expertise? Yeah, it, it's both. Um, so the, the great thing about our, our fellowship program is that the fellows get to choose their placement. And so we spend the first six weeks of, of the program first training them, um, but then um, uh, shopping them around, essentially. Um, and it's really it's, it's really up to the fellow um, what they want to get out of the program. To date, about two-thirds have gone to member offices, what we call personal offices, um, and then a third have gone to committees. Um, and for them, it's really, do you want to go you know, narrow and deep, uh, in which case you should go to a committee, because uh, committee has a defined jurisdiction and a set of issues, and, and jurisdictions really are well-defined <laughs> well and constraining. Um, or if you want to work on, you know, privacy and AI and sensitive disinformation and the Boeing 737 Max uh, uh, crashes, and uh, you know, maybe maybe a, like a health policy bill because you need to pitch in on something, um, then you go to a, a member office, and it, it really depends on the fellow and the, the the experience that they want to have. And so, how long do they wind up staying there, and then what? If any outcomes have you kind of measured, or how do you measure success or of, of their stint? Yeah, um, so we've had uh, we've had sixty five fellows today. We've had fifty five graduate the program, um, and uh, fourteen have stayed on on the hill in full time roles. Um, so our goal is to be converting um, is to be converting fellows at between a one and four and a one and three rate. So if you do the math, we're we're, slight, we're slightly above a one in four rate, um, though we're improving the model. Um, we've moved towards a, 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 an express model where we want them um, to, to, we want to find people that we think will want to stay in Congress. And I should say, this is a, this is a distinction between kind of the 1.0 of the GovTech pipeline models, uh, the Code for America, US Digital Service, 18F, um, where originally, we were, th- we were thinking about these, like, like, like the team that came in and saved healthcare.gov as tours of duty. Um, the original thinking was let's, let's take technologists, let's bring them in, let's put them in on a hard problem and then they'll go back. Um, and you know, that's, that's great. I think fellows get wonderful experiences through a tour of duty. Um, government does benefit, but the real uh, impact happens, you know, in year two, year three, year four, uh, once you've learned, uh, you know, What's the motion to recommit? Who's the junior senator from Idaho? Um, these things that are that are really important to be um, to be proficient and effective in the legislative process. So, um, so we really want fellows to stay on. Um, for those that don't, um, the vast majority still stay in the in the broader public sector. Um, a lot have gone to think tanks or um, nonprofits uh, working on tech policy. A lot have gone to the executive branch um, at the Department of Defense or Department of Homeland Security, um, uh, uh, election security work, um, a, a variety of, of, of aims. And then some do go back to the private sector, but what we find is those that go back to the private sector, they go back in explicitly or implicitly policy roles. And so they may be a product manager, but they're bringing that, you know, if you're a product manager on the, on the Google Ads team, you're bringing that perspective of, of the regulatory process and 
and this, this frame of reference that all tech companies, frankly, need to have, which is um, government's looking to regulate. These, these, these institutions are the, uh, are the infrastructure of our daily lives. And so companies need to be very mindful of how they're building their products, both as it relates to potential regulation, but also um, you know, potential impacts um, thinking longer term. So, so our fellows have that unique um, perspective that makes them really, uh, really effective in the private sector when they go back as well. And do you think they're having like a, an impact on the policy itself? You know, some, when you, you mentioned the healthcare example, you know, for me, I'm a little bit skeptical of a doctor's ability to really add a lot of value into the policy process. And in, in some ways it could be counterproductive um, because they also represent a kind of special interest uh, sure. within, the, within the system. You know, how do you address those kinds of issues or is it more just helping people understand what they're even talking about? Yeah, so I would say, you know, it's one perspective, um, and uh, and so the, that tech perspective, um, when a bill is getting, you know, if you've got twelve individual state twelve stakeholders that are writing a bill, um, having that one tech perspective is really important, both for a baseline knowledge to make sure what you what you are writing is is functional. Frankly, I mean, increasingly, you know. Technology is the infrastructure of our daily lives. Benefits um, at the federal, state, and local level are being delivered digitally, um, and so having an understanding of what of of what that should look like um, is really really important. We've seen, and we can talk about this, but um, you know there were a, there were a bunch of dropped balls during COVID relief um, uh, by the government not thinking uh, about deployment, about delivery, um, and so. Uh, they are having an impact, um, and they are uh, they are um, adding that perspective, being that gut check, being that filter. Um, uh, I'll give I'll give one recent example of of frankly a a, a, a bill that moved um, where they came in too late, um, uh, but there are fixes in the works. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill included a provision um, regulating um, crypto uh, digital currencies. Uh, as a pay for, and uh, it said um, all um, you know, all of these all of these folks in, 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 uh, involved in in digital currency that both uh, you know brokers and traders, but also miners, stakers, node operators, and developers need to register with the SEC and um, and 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 register their trades um, in decentralized finance and in, in on the blockchain node op operators, developers, miner, stakers, the way that the way that the blockchain is designed, they do not have access to some knowledge about the trades and about the traders. So the what the SEC uh, was hoping for and what some legislators put in that bill was actually technically unworkable um, because they were they were going to be requiring these individuals to um, to uh, to register information that they didn't they didn't functionally have access to on the blockchain. Um, so we had a, we had a uh, alumni come in later. They offered an amendment um, uh, through a political process. The amendment was ultimately withdrawn, and now they're working on a fix. But um, it's a great example of a bill being signed into law with a massive technical failure because there wasn't a technologist at that stage when that provision was being was being written. So I could talk about uh, a lot more of those examples, but um, that's why having that filter is so important. Yeah, I can see the seeing the implementation challenges uh, or even un, in a, you know unintended consequences might be something that could be a lot of value brought by technologists in those kind of circumstances. Absolutely. Um, well, let's move on a little bit to the concept of technology in Congress itself. You know, so you know this program is really about. On the one side, I think it's square in the middle of what we're trying to look at is how to improve Congress's. Uh, institutional performance right, by bringing this kind of technology perspective. So I think what you're doing there is just phenomenal. Um, on the other hand, there's, you know, Congress uses technology as it's, itself. It, it's a consumer of technology. And some of those technologies are pretty specific to, the, to Congress. You know, the, um, you know, they have a different process than a lot of companies do. So you can't just use a CRM off the shelf and use it for your business, et cetera. For, for Congress, quite different. They have a lot of custom-built technologies, or they don't have technologies where maybe they should have technologies. So I'm curious about, you know, your experience on the Hill as a person who's deeply into this space, you know, where, what's the state of the situation about, you know, technology in Congress? Where are the kind of the gaps 
And do you have any activities or thoughts related to how those can be filled? Yeah, lots, lots of thoughts. Uh, so, so let me let me start with giving an example, which is when I worked for Congressman Waxman, and we were, you know, I was legislative director, so I was in charge of, uh, you know, the managing the legislative process, but also our constituent correspondence, um, our outreach to district leaders and district stakeholders. The platform that we used uh, for sending and responding to constituent correspondence, uh, you couldn't segment a list. You couldn't uh, um, in, it, include an image. <laughs> you could not embed an image in, in a newsletter. Um, uh, it, it, it was it, it was incredibly, and it to this day remains at least a decade behind um, behind the latest um, software available in the private sector. So there there are a couple challenges there. Um, first is yeah, Congress is unique. It is. Um, frankly, not a customer that's large enough for um, a lot of private sector um, entities. And uh, many of the private sector uh, solutions have to be modified to meet the unique needs of, um, of and constraints of the institution, both in terms of process and security. Um, but the, the, the bigger challenge is that um, I think often security is used as a reason um, not for Congress to be able to have Zoom, have Slack, have Google Docs. Um, uh, there are important security concerns uh, for the institution. I mean, th there's no ignoring that Russian, Russia is targeting, Russia has targeted uh, members, Russia has targeted staff, um, uh, but security is often um, used as a reason to, um, to prohibit bringing in modern tools um, that, uh, that frankly staff are already using. Um, I mean, we were using Google Docs, even though they weren't uh, approved, because if you're trying to um, trying to manage an appropriations bill with 500 amendments, you need a collaborative, <laughs> you need a collaboration tool. Um, granted, the Microsoft products have gotten a lot better since. Um, but um, so what Congress needs, Congress needs more. Um, one of the challenges is that within the institutional offices, even those um, don't have enough um, individuals that have uh, lived um, within the tech community, that have built or written software, and that can speak to and push back on, um, there's, a, there's an imbalance, frankly. Um, the security teams and those in, in um, managing cybersecurity for the Hill um, do have a very strong technical acumen, but it is, uh, it is very narrowly focused on, on security. And so um, the modernizers um, and, and, the, and the folks on the institutional teams that are pushing for new tools, new collaborative um, opportunities, um, not having that technical acumen, not, not having those individuals um, means that security for security's sake always wins out. And, and in, many, in many cases, um, the security arguments are, are thin or um, uh, uh, you know, there are trade-offs. Um, and you know, having a Congress that, um, uh, that can't know um, uh, that if, uh, you know, that if, if Matthew is writing in uh, a dozen times about healthcare, that you care about healthcare and we want to be able to tell you what we're doing um, uh, to promote um, healthcare reform, um, that's a problem. Um, and, and so we need, uh, you know, we need the software for the institution to, to effectively operate. So you mentioned constituent service as, a, as an area. You mentioned this kind of markup amendment procedure, uh, you know, as an area where technology can solve some some challenges, what other areas, you know, either in member offices or in committee offices or even in leadership, where you feel like there's a some opportunity for someone to come in and build something that would be game changing for the institution in terms of its effectiveness and performance? There, there, are, there are too many to count, um, frankly, but I'll but I'll, I'll name a couple that um, that are that are that that are exciting and, and, uh, and that are opportunities in a couple where the, the Congress is making progress. Um, you know, the first is digital signatures, which uh, you maybe wouldn't be surprised to know. Um, Congress is only now adop adopting. So uh, fast forward about 26 months um, on March 10th, 11th and 12th, when um, the coronavirus was hitting and the NBA shut down, um, members and staff were starting to test positive. This was also appropriation season. So this is the, this is the budget season. 
members of Congress want to weigh in with the appropriators to say, um, you know, we should fund this transportation project or, you know, this water infrastructure project, and they get their colleagues to sign on to these letters. But the offices were shutting down. Um, Congress didn't have a digital signatures tool. And um, as a consequence, you had, you had literally hundreds of interns running. I mean, there were, there were these, cha there were chats on, uh, on all the group chats about, um, comically about about interns literally running um, to meet the deadline by the end of the week to get all these signatures before before offices were, were going to shut down because COVID was spreading. Um, in the meantime, nobody really uh, thought about the fact that, you know, one, one of these interns could have been asymptomatic and probably like literally could have been uh, the vector for bringing down um, half of the half of the legislative branch. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. Um, but uh, as a as a as a consequence of that, Congress realized that the urgent need for digital signatures, the Senate had a tool, had had a tool that was in beta being um, rolled out. Um, I mean, I, as an intern, I spent probably 20% of my internship walking around letters getting signatures. So it, these are these are things that seem very basic and frankly are very basic. Um, uh, but the Congress just hasn't, you know, figured out and figured out. And that's because there, there hadn't been a tool available to them that that could work in the eyes of Congress. But digital signatures is one. Um, the amendment process, uh, there was a uh, uh, um, leader Hoyer and uh, leader McCarthy held a, a congressional hackathon uh, about six weeks ago. And one of the projects that we worked on, so this is an attempt to get people together um, to brainstorm potential you know, tech solutions. One of the um, things that we, the ideas we worked on was, um, a tool for managing the amendment process in committee. So right now, the way that an amendment process is managed in committee is committee to committee. Uh, you start out a markup, which is the, the amending process as a bill. And you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the clerk that's running that has a document of amendments that they think are gonna come. Um, maybe it's a spreadsheet. Um, there's not a process for um, a formalized process for intake. So it comes in, sometimes these come in email, sometimes they come in papers being dropped off. Um, uh, sometimes they come as a, as a Word document, as an attachment. Um, and a, a lot of times amendments come on the fly in, uh, in the legislative process because there isn't a tool for managing intake of amendments. Um, there's also not an opportunity to see real-time changes to a bill. And so um, often, and there's also, you can, there's a process for amending an amendment so you can understand the complexity, what happens if someone brings a second degree amendment. Having a, having a platform for managing an amendment process would be very, very helpful. Mistakes are also made. Uh, let's, be, let's be frank about this. Um, and so an amendment process tool would, would also be very helpful. I could go on for hours, I'll, I'll stop there. Those are two of the sort of more exciting ones. Well, do you have any thoughts on the leadership side since you, you've mentioned member offices and you've mentioned now committees? Any, what's your top pick or so for the leadership? I mean, there's been discussion about a calendaring system, right? Which would seem a no brainer uh, that would, you know, maximize the productivity or the, the, the lack of, you know, the smallest amount of overlap for all different kinds of meetings. But uh, any thoughts there on the leadership side? Yeah, I mean, I think calendaring is a huge, huge challenge. Um, uh, it is a, uh, I think the statistic, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get the statistic wrong, but the average U.S. senator is like double booked on her hearings, you know, a quarter of the time or a third of the time. Um, that has real consequences. If your senator is skipping the hearing on unemployment uh, insurance for independent contractors, they should be present at that and contributing at that because they have have another hearing that they are chairing because they're, you know, the subcommittee chair of the, you know, energy, uh, energy um, pipeline subcommittee. Um, so calendaring is a huge one. This, this may sound, um, this may sound uh, minor, but um, scheduling meeting rooms. Um, space is a massive, is a, is a, is, is, is at a serious premium in Congress. Um, when we, the last four years in Congressman Waxman's office, our meeting space was, you know, we had, we had seven people in a, you can't see my room, but in a, in a room about, uh, um, you know, about the size of, uh, you know, uh, um, well, a very, very small, very small size, like a, probably a double driveway. Um, 
Uh, and then we had a table for, for meeting, um, but the table only sat four people. So what happens if you have a lobby group that shows up um, or constituents that show up that are have eight people? Um, the common meeting rooms um, are used actually as political tools. And they're frequently, they're just sitting idle because you have to get to request a meeting room or request a hearing room when it's sitting idle, you need to get the approval of, um, you know, the, the, the staff director and then the clerk and then some other person. Um, that means that people end up taking meetings and not having the right conversations that they should be having with constituents. Um, it may sound minor, but it's, it's impactful. It's, it is your First Amendment uh, ability to petition your government, to be able to have a space where you can have a serious conversation about um, the challenges in your community or the challenges um, you're having with, uh, with, with um, you know, a government uh, a benefit delivery. So uh, meeting room space is another where tech could be an easy solution if it was deployed effectively. Well, let's move on to the concept of, uh, of data. You know, we talked about software, sort of, a, that's kind of what we're getting at there and it's immediate <laughs> data movement, but you've also done some work directly on uh, information as it relates to Congress. In particular, I think it's, maybe you can talk about that project, was that the, letter, the letters? Uh, maybe yeah. can you explain what you did there and your general thoughts about the use of data in Congress and how that could be improved, either outbound information to constituents or inbound from the outside into Congress's decision-making? So let's start with outbound and just say that, I mean, anything that Congress has published should be published via an API. Um, and right now it's not. Um, so we can talk about, um, we can talk about salary data, which may, you know, um, may on its surface feel like, oh, well, you know, it's great to know what people are, what Hill staffers are making, but, um, you know, why does that actually matter? Well, salary data um, matters for a couple of reasons. Um, if you're able to, if you were able to map that across and compare across different offices, across different races and ethnicities, you can see much more clearly, and I'm I'm virtually certain that the, the data would bear this out, that there is an inequity across uh, racial and gender lines um, uh, among staffers. Because salary data is published as PDF, um, uh, that, that, is, that is not a thing that is, that is easy for, uh, for a civil society organization or a university center to make sense of. Um, you also, uh, in terms of retention, Legistorm, which is a for-profit company and has a has proprietary systems around all of the, the data that they they pull, um, but that does publish uh, the salary data, uh, makes sense of the salary data that, that the Congress publishes, publishes a annual turnover list and ranks the uh, the offices that have the highest staff turnover. If you were to go to 2017 and look at um, the top 10 offices with the highest turnover, um, Come one year later, um, five of those offices, those members would have uh, uh, resigned, um, uh, resigned or decided not to seek re-election because of sexual harassment or discrimination concerns. So that that data, there's there is insight in that data. Um, that is one small example. Any piece of data that Congress is publishing should be published via an API so we could make sense of it. I'm really passionate about letters. This is um, everybody thinks about. Congress and lawmaking and thinks about legislation, you know, HR, H dot, R dot, bill number, S dot, bill number, um, and thinks of that as the output of Congress. When um, in truth, the vast majority of the output of Congress, especially in days um, as the institution has, has been more dysfunctional, um, a, a good, uh, the oversight function of Congress, um, the bully pulpit of Congress, um, getting, um, uh, other branches of government or private sector entities to change their policies via pressure. Um, this is uh, this is a, a huge portion of the output of Congress, and and the form in which that takes is the letter. Um, so Congress still um, authors letters uh, and publishes them and sends them uh, to a variety of entities, um, and. Uh, we have no system for capturing or tracking or making sense of all of this. Um, this is this matters. So when I was packing up Congressman Waxman's office uh, in 2014, we found a letter from 1982 uh, to the Reagan administration um, asking for increased funding uh, at the NIH and uh, CDC for a mysterious illness that had killed several dozen uh, of Congressman Waxman's constituents in. West Hollywood and the researchers at that time were calling it GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency. 
And this was the first, uh, to our knowledge, the first action, legislative action that Congress had taken on HIV and AIDS. Um, that letter is sitting in the basement of a UCLA library somewhere. Um, and so, so this information matters. It would be wonderful to have a tool to capture um, and make sense of, of, of this information. Um, another place where uh, having more data, having more data scientists, having a broader reform community with that expertise could do a lot of good. So for that kind of data, when you're, you're thinking about that outbound data, like that's coming from Congress to the, to the agencies, right? And it's a kind of a, you could call it a congressional deliverable, or just like you mentioned that the, the, the legislation itself is kind of an output or deliverable of Congress. And I totally agree that measuring that information output and understanding and analyzing it is an important way to kind of measure Congress's performance, right? What about data within Congress itself, you know, and, and, and when, even when you were working on the Hill, you know, what kind of data were you using, you know, when it came to either, you know, the constituency, right, number one, or sort of like on, you know, your own office's performance? Do you have any way to like kind of measure yourself against the other uh, offices we're out there? And are we doing a better job than, you know, House member X, you know, et cetera? On performance, that's a really good question. And, and the only performance data that you will see is, you know, effectiveness of a legislator, which, which will be the numbers of bill, the bills they get signed into law, which is a very, very overly simplistic um, definition of data. So how do you define, you know, moving the ball forward on an issue? I'll you know, come, come back and give an example of Congressman Waxman in 1994, chairing a hearing with seven CEOs and then raising their right hands and, and, uh, and proclaiming that um, their research and, and um, uh, their view was that tobacco was not addictive and didn't uh, have health consequences. Um, hugely consequential hearing, um, hugely consequential in the public consciousness and for moving the ball on, uh, on regulating uh, tobacco and, and understanding tobacco at, at, uh, for the ill uh, that it is. Um, how do you define that? I don't know. Um, but uh, the only marker right now that people use is bills introduced, bills maybe marked up at the committee, though I, we don't even see that analysis uh, typically, bills signed into law. So this is a this is a massive um, <laughs> massive opportunity. Um, how did we judge our own performance? You know, this gets this gets to also another one of the challenges of Congress, which is uh, Congress is five hundred thirty five small businesses. Um, our performance as staffers was judged by if the member of Congress was happy with us, which was generally judged by if they heard good things from the constituents or didn't hear good things from their constituents. Um, and ultimately whether they got uh, reelected or not. Um, so, but I will say even on basics of constituent correspondence, letters, come in, letters coming in, average uh, wait time for a response uh, for form letters, for uh, personal letters, the tools are very simplistic with that. Um, and you can run reports um, to figure out you know, your, your turnaround time for, for constituent letters. Are we able to benchmark that against other offices to understand, you know, what's the average? Who are the offices that are doing this well versus who's not? No, because there's not any universal measure of tracking um, within the institution as well. Um, and this is where a, a really good uh, constituent correspondence tool, having a Zendesk for, you know, the veteran that's coming in and, and having problems with the VA, they should have a they should have a Zendesk like um, uh, dashboard to understand where their appeal is in a process when we're managing that. Um, this is another software solution that exists in the private sector that could exist in Congress if there were the right people within the institution to shepherd that through. Um, might not be Zendesk, but uh, you know there are lot, lots of uh, lots of competitors in this space. Um, so, so let's move on to this concept of. Um strategic planning. I know you've done some of this work. I think I saw that strategic planning for member offices, really. Uh, can you talk about what that means? You know, what, what is the, what does the member need and what's the kind of solution that you're providing in that case? Uh, what is strategic planning for a member? So what, the way that we manage these trainings, so I did this for about a dozen member offices, and this was a, a, a process. It, it was a, it was a 
facilitation training. Uh, it was a training that I learned off the hill through an organization I was part of and um, offered it up to my team. It was incredibly helpful. Um, and then started offering it up to any, any of the legislative directors in the California delegation um, and ended up doing, doing 10 or 12 of them. Um, this was a very basic training. Um, so it was a legislative director focused training for that staff member role. For offering to the legislative directors to give for their staffs. Okay, so, so you're training the trainer. Yeah, train. Uh, uh, well, no, actually, training training the staffs, um, okay. but in partnership with the legislative director um, in the office. So um, we would sit down and ask basic questions like, you know, what is what does success in your portfolio look like uh, in three months and in and one and one year? Um, how do we work backwards from that? Um, you know, what, what are the core priorities of the district? Where are places that we're not, um, uh, where are there opportunities for legislative action that nobody's working on in Congress that could be working on? Um, who are, uh, from a personal development perspective, who are uh, individuals within, um, within the institution that you would seek out as mentors? How do we, you know, design a process to reach out and ask for support and, and build relationships? Um, there were 90 minute trainings, um, fairly simplistic. Um, I think what, what that spoke to was the need for a broader, um, a broader set of, um, of actors within Congress that could, that could provide this kind of training uh, and provide frameworks for, um, uh, for a variety of, uh, of, of functions. The good news is Congress is doing this um, now, uh, or they're starting to do this. The Modernization Committee had a recommendation for a staff academy. Um, it was in part modeled off of um, a, not this training, but another training that I helped build um, uh, with a colleague. Um, and so they're, they're starting to build these curriculum. And, and I think that will go a long way in helping um, staffers and ultimately members um, you know, think more strategically and prioritize and stop being so reactive because this is the challenge. Congress is, is reacting, reacting, reacting all day. And so finding the space to be proactive is, is, a, is, a, is, is so important. Yeah, so it sounds like a prioritization, a goal setting across multiple different timeframes, right? The short, medium, and the longer term. It, longer term being, I guess, a two-year maximum. Uh, in terms of, <laughs> right. it, it is typically couched in two-year terms. If, you know, for many members that are in safe districts and members know they want to stick around. So you can, you can have a longer time horizon, but the truth is some of your stakeholders, some of your partners, uh, some of your committee assignments may change um, during that two year period. So that is the typical window in which we're looking at. And was the strategic planning um, things, is this training you were running, is it focused on the legislative aspect or the oversight aspect or the constituent service aspect, or was it uh, all of that together as a broad strategy versus just legislation? It was all of that together. And, and, and often what you find is that in offices, there, there are different individuals that are, the, that are the leads on each of those, uh, on each of those verticals. And so the training was a, was a broader kind of general set of questions to help think about, um, uh, to, to reflect and then plan a strategy. Um, and typically in an office, you know, you've got, you've got the, the person that's <clears throat> the lead on constituent correspondence. So they're, they're the ones that are going to be driving that train versus, you know, legislative um, work versus, you know, um, working with the district. Uh, so, so let's let's talk a little bit more on another side of technology, which is this kind of digital communication. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the people you're interacting with are very, um, very uh, in tune with, you know, the various kinds of social media channels and other types of technologies that can be outbound from Congress or can be inbound from constituents or can be among constituents uh, that the member has to listen in on. Uh, so what's your perspective on how these kind of media channels or these social media platforms have evolved since you've been in Congress? And you know, what incentives are they really creating inside? Other than the obvious, I wanna get, you know, they want to get some notoriety or they want to get some attention, you know, where do you, how do you see it really affecting the day-to-day -day operation of Congress and what they're paying attention to? So on one hand, the tools have opened up the institution, especially since COVID uh, you hear of um, 
Uh, witnesses are able to testify remotely. By the way, I mean, Congress does not pay for witnesses to come and testify. If you want, if you are invited to testify, you have to take that time off of your work. Uh, and as someone who's testified, I can tell you, it, I mean, it, this is a week of your life, at least, um, because you want to, you want to put your best, <laughs> you want to show up in your best self. You have to take a week off from work. You have to travel. Um, you have to pay your own way. You have to pay your own hotels. Um, so, but um, remote, uh, remote testifying is now an option, um, which allows, uh, which, which has allowed, and I, and I hope will continue to allow uh, members to, um, uh, to reach uh, and allow folks to testify that weren't um, already uh, able to. Um, constituent meetings also, uh, video has been, is commonplace on the Hill. And so I think that does enable, um, uh, that does enable uh, easier constituent um, uh, meetings. You don't have to fly to Washington to have a, have a, have a face-to-face, -face. you know, it's behind a screen, but it's still, it's better than a phone call, uh, which is what uh, Congress was operating on prior to. Um, and, you know, I do think that some of the uh, live streaming um, uh, of, uh, uh, of meetings um, uh, can be helpful. Um, I think social media um, is not productive. Um, I, you know, in the same way that social media doesn't, doesn't feel uh, very, very productive in, in other uh, sectors or other arenas. I, I don't know that it's productive. I, I think you see uh, members um, uh, sniping at one another in a way that they just would not in person in the same way that, you know, we engage, uh, all of us users may, uh, may, be, may be inclined to post something that is a little bit more, um, uh, that goes a little further than we would in a human to human in person interaction. I think that that's, that happens with members of Congress as well. Um, and from the tools perspective, it, Congress has not gotten to the point where it's doing an effective job of understanding, um, what constituents are concerned about, uh, posting about, writing it about um, on, on social. These sentiment analysis tools exist. I mean, if, you, if, <laughs> if you're Starbucks or if you're Boeing or if you're Alaska Airlines or if you're, uh, um, uh, you know, e even if you're a, a local restaurant chain, you know, there are sentiment, anal sentiment analysis, analysis tools that you can use to understand how people are, um, how, what people are thinking about your brand, what, how people are. Um, this is a, this is a kind of thing that Congress can pay for um, and make available to uh, to members um, out of a you know out of a um, out of a central pool. Um, as of yet, as yet, um, I, Congress has not really evolved on how it manages social since I have left. Um, I, I members are using it much more um, than when than when I left. When I left, it was probably maybe. A, uh, a third of members were really active, actually active on, on, on Twitter, very few on Instagram. Um, and now it's virtually hundred percent, but I, I don't know that that content is all that productive, um, sadly. Uh, but this is, you know, this is the, uh, this is the case with social media across society, I think. So Congress is not immune from that. Yeah, and the challenge also is this notion that the information they're getting from social media is, is not representative, right, mm -hmm. of the constituency, right? It can be distorted in so many ways, and it's hard to sift through. There's, there's not a normalization that happens anywhere that says, well, this might be very loud, but it only represents a tiny portion of the, of the constituency. Extraordinarily important point as well. Um, and, you know, members of Congress are Active. I mean, they they check these. They check their mentions. Um, most, many of them do. Uh, probably most of them do. So members of Congress see what is coming at them, and uh, and I think you make an important point that they are they are seeing uh, seeing a minority. You know, uh, say say what you will about the you know the Tea Party in, in twenty ten. That was in person interaction. I remember that. I remember people coming to our office, um, and you felt it. But it took a lot. Um, and I remember being in the district and being being confronted. It takes a lot to, you know, get in your car and drive to a thing and show up. Um, uh, and uh, and it takes a lot to, you know, to raise your voice um, in person. Uh, it's a lot easier to, you know, hide behind the screen and do it. So um, I don't know. I don't know how you solve for that. But 
So let's talk a little bit about the reform community. I know you have some opinions about that. You know, it's a, it's a small group of people. We've talked to a lot of them on this program. We'll talk to more. Um, you know, what's your thoughts about the reform community, the small group that's trying to figure out how to make Congress, you know, a better institutional place uh, over the long run? You know, what are your thoughts about where it is, where it's kind of come from, and where do you think it needs to go? So it's grown, I mean, extraordinarily. Um, it's still tiny. <laughs> but when I when I started Tech Congress, I mean, there were there were a dozen people uh, in the space, uh, and now it's probably thirty to forty. Um, uh, but that's thirty to forty individuals that are working on, and and that's not that's not hyperbole. That is it. I that is a and you you probably know the the, <laughs> the number a lot better because you have interviewed all of them. You know, thirty or forty people that are working on uh, reforming an entire branch of government that also happens to be the first branch, Article One, um, and designed as the as the uh, originating branch by the framers. This is where. Uh, where the laws are authorized and where programs are paid for, um, and the executive branch implements um, the the Congress the Congress authorizes and, and and cuts checks. So thirty or forty people working on an entire branch of government is nothing. Um, thirty or forty people is a tiny startup. Uh, you know, Facebook, Google. I mean, these are these are companies well over a hundred thousand people. Um, uh, they're 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 large companies, um, but uh, they're, they dwarf the legislative branch. Legis legislative branch has about fourteen um, thousand uh, employees in the in, when we talk about like legislative functions, policy staffers um, and others, like in member offices and committees, um, not support staff. But you know, fourteen thousand people is a whole branch of government. Um, uh, you know, that's I don't know. That's probably the size of. Interest or something. Um, so the reform community is growing, and that is great. Um, it, it it there needs to be there. It needs to be much larger. Um, it needs to be much larger, um, and I and and it also needs to. Um, there need to be more opportunities for uh, hill staffers coming out of um, out of service in Congress to put the put their skills to use for improving the institution. Um, you know, I, I had to I had to bootstrap for eleven months to get Tech Congress off the ground uh, through a combination of unemployment insurance and um, some savings and a like very small Indiegogo crowd crowdfunding campaign. I, I made it work. Um, not uh, not a lot of people are are able to do that, especially if I was lucky not to have a partner or or kids. Um, not a lot of people are able to make that happen, um, and I, I'm a I'm a firm believer that um, a lot of the uh, revolving door um, of Congress, uh, of, of, of staffers going and um, going to work for, you know, essentially going to work against the interests that they'd spent their time in Congress advocating, um, advocating for, um, uh, really, I mean, really flipping sides, frankly, um, that that is path dependency. Um, this is not because they necessarily want to do this, but there are not opportunities for them to earn a decent living um, working on and improving the institution um, that they have devoted a good portion of their lives to. When those opportunities do exist, they, they, people step up, and, and I can give you a, a good example of this, which is in, uh, in October, late October and early November of, of, of uh, 20. Um, of 2017, um, the Harvey Weinstein allegations were raging and uh, reporters were, it was an open secret that there were members of Congress that were uh, bad actors, um, that treated staff poorly, that treated um, other individuals poorly. And um, a group of former staffers that I was uh, lucky enough to be involved with um, provided a space, um, started with a letter, um, uh, and provided a space, ultimately started um, providing a space for uh, staffers that had been victims um, and survivors of, of sexual harassment and abuse to come forward, to get trained on, on talking to the media, uh, either on background or on the record. Um, and you started to see uh, story by story, um, uh, the levy broke. Um, and within six months, there were eight members of Congress that had uh, resigned their seats or decided not to run run for re-election um 
there was an, there was an active space for staffers to come, come, come together and support one another and use the, the skills they had um, to coach one another, but also after the fact, frankly, lobbying their former colleagues and their former bosses about the forms that needed to happen in the institution. Um, and you saw, uh, you know, there was a, a, a groundbreaking reform law signed into law uh, at the end of 2018. And that was former staffers engaging in this, um, in this space. And that, that was because a couple other former staffers provided the space for them um, to engage. So we, we need much more of that. A lot of this is depending on funding. And this is, this is another challenge is that very few funders, I think because Congress, Congress is a tiny place, 14,000 staff, you don't have alumni of the institution uh, and the numbers that you do coming out of um, executive branches. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a, there's a lack of experience and understanding with Congress. And so it's a, it's a harder place to fund because it's a, it's a more opaque place. Um, so uh, I, you know, there have been some funders that have stepped into the mix, some, some great public interest funders. Um, Hewlett Foundation, um, uh, principal among them, Democracy Fund has been funding um, great work in this space. Um, but I, I think having, having a greater funding ecosystem could go a long way. Great, well, I think we have to move on now to the questions I ask all of our guests. We can compare the answers at some point. You ready for the next phase? Yeah, let's do it. All right, well, the first question here is, um, you know, what do you think congressional representation should mean? And by this, you know, are you a, a Burkean? You know, they, you know, the um, the member needs to make judgments on behalf of their constituents, or are they just windows into the beliefs of their constituents, the current moment? And do they represent everybody in the district, or just the primary voters, or the future? You know, who are they representing, and how are they supposed to represent them? Uh, I, I do believe I, I do believe that we are a representative government and that the representative needs to make decisions on behalf of constituents and then be judged um, on those decisions every two years, um, at least in the House. Uh, but I, but they and they need to represent the broad, broad swath of of um, of of the constituency. Um, and this is where I, I think gerrymandering and these these tiny sandwich districts where um, where the true challenges in the primary are incredibly problematic um, because you have members that are not forced to listen to all of their constituency. Um, I also think um, what it means to be representative is to employ a staff that is representative of, of your district. Um, and that is something um, that is getting better. Um, but uh, the structures of Congress and the way that Congress hires um, privilege a very specific set of people, generally people that have relationships um, because they can, you know, get have that have that conversation and get that first foot in the door um, through an internship, and that also can um, survive those first two years of just really really low pay. I mean, we're talking um, it can get as low as it's twenty eight thousand dollars a year. Um, the starting has typically been. $35,000 a year in a city where, you know, to live with roommates and to live with four roommates and share a bathroom costs you $1,500 a month in, in Washington, D.C. I, I think this is also getting better. Speaker Pelosi just announced a $45,000 uh, floor, um, uh, which is which is helpful. Um, but, uh, you know, Congress does not represent the, the lived experience. What we are solving for with Tech Congress is, is, is frankly not a tech problem. It's a pipeline problem. Um, and that is, that it is it just extraordinarily hard for people to, to get their foot in the door unless they both A, start at the bottom rung and B, have relationships. Um, and so a representative Congress means someone that employs people with the, with the lived and relevant expertise to govern effectively. Um, and that's, uh, at the end of the day, personnel is policy, so. Great, well, next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by this, I mean, you know, constituent service versus legislation versus some of the oversight activities you described earlier. Uh, and should they be, you know, 100% of the time in DC living here all year round with no vacations, or should they spend 99% of their time back in the home district? Where, where, where would you see the member break down their time? I think it's important for members to maintain a relationship to the home district. So I, I'm, I'm very much supportive and, and Congressman Waxman 
did this. Speaker, I've sat on a number of flights with Speaker Pelosi going back <laughs> to San Francisco, her sitting in a middle seat of economy class. I don't know how they do it, but they do it and, and God bless them. Um, but I think going back is, is really important. Um, so, um, but I do think that they need, they should have residences in, 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 in DC, uh, building relationships among members. At the end of the day, that's the, that's uh, a critical, critical part of, of, um, so what percentage of the time would you have them in DC versus a home district? Probably have them, uh, two thirds, two thirds, one third, uh, maybe, uh, 70, 30, 75, a quarter. How about dialing for dollars versus like work in the work on legislative on uh, legislative branch activities? So uh, my uh, my belief on 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 fundraising is the the act of fundraising in and of in and of itself is not problematic. Um, I mean it's it's problematic in terms of time allocation. Yes, I would not I, that is not a good use of their time. The challenge is we as human beings are a function of the people that we surround ourselves with. There is solid uh, sociological research around this. And so if you spend your days dialing for dollars, your worldview is the people that you are talking to dialing for dollars. And so a huge reason that I think our representatives are out of touch is because the world in which they occupy is contacting rich, rich people and asking for their money. So my, my challenge with, with dialing for dollars, it's not, it's not the act in and of itself. It's the, it's the perversion of the worldview that they have because of the, the, the kinds of people that they think occupy the world. Um, you know, this is, uh, in any case, so I'll, I'll step back from that. You can make the same um, argument then we made earlier for the social media, right? If they're, in, if they're immersed constantly with a minority who are loud, then, uh, then they become creatures of that world too. 100%, 100%. So um, how, you know, um, you know, unfortunately it's also really difficult as a constituent to understand that you can even engage with the member or, or the office. Um, you know, civic education, um, understanding that, uh, that, that members exist, exist to represent you. We had an open door policy. Anytime anybody asked for a meeting, we took it. But the number of times that people asked for a meeting that, that came on their behalf, that did not come from a group organizing them, um, uh, uh, were extraordinarily rare. I mean, I'd say less than 2%. Um, and so there's an element of civic education of you have an ability and a responsibility to communicate with your office and your member. Um, so if I, you know, if I had to think about allocating time, I'd think about a third meaningfully engaging with constituents. Um, and then, um, you know, a good proportion uh, legislating, which would also, you know, I would, I would put legislating and authorize, or excuse me, um, uh, oversight in the same function, but, but it's a built about around relationship building with, with other members. Um, so that like that functional output, I would put it two thirds. Um, but that, but that means frankly, a redesign, um, uh, because, you know, the way to, there aren't opportunities, you know, like members don't just show up to there's not a coordinated like let's have a brainstorm and think about what we should do about you know principles of ai ethics or uh it only happens when members decide that they're going to reach out to x number other member to say like would you be a partner on this well that that brings up the next question i have which is you know how should debate deliberation or dialogue occur or be structured in congress so you have you know this you know structured floor right where you have <clears throat> A kind of interaction between members. You have the committee where there's another kind of interaction. Then there's, you know, then there's informal, you know, interactions between members. You know, where do you think this concept of debate or discussion, dialogue should happen? And should it be all public domain where everybody can read every word or watch everything that everybody says? Or should there be some private ways for members to communicate with each other and, and you know, spitball some of the things you mentioned? So I, I think it, I think it should be both, but I would love to see more structured, informal conversations, generative brainstorm, off the record, closed. You know that that doesn't exist. I, as a staffer, if I want to, you know, there are the, the institution does not in, does not organize or incentivize. What about caucuses? After, Don't they form a little bit of that kind of role, or is that not a not a thing in your mind? Sort of, uh, but caucuses are mostly a front. <laughs> caucuses are mostly 
uh, are mostly a way for a member to mm-hmm. pretend like they're, frankly, to pretend like they're active on an issue. Um, and and they, they are an organizational structure that could be improved and worked upon. Um, but uh, you don't actually see a lot of substance coming out of caucuses, um, unfortunately. Um, so, so you believe in a, a, you know, some private interactions between members where they can have open discussion and in some public, I guess I'm assuming that's in committee or on the floor kind of interaction. Correct. And, and I would also like to, I'd also like to think about a, a restructuring of the public side um, uh, to give it guardrails around, <laughs> to, 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 to allow for better actual conversation because a committee hearing right now is grandstanding. It's not a conversation. It's not a deliberation. Um, and there are, this is where, you know, uh, bringing in a design thinking community, bringing in a, a broader um, ecosystem to understand what, you know, Amanda Ripley, high conflict, right? Like how do we, how do we design our engagement so that we can, so that we can minimize the conflict and actually begin to begin to have a conversation because what's happening, these aren't conversations. They're not. And so we shouldn't, we should start with the presumption that we're not talking right now and think about think about how do we build a system that will allow people to actually talk. Absolutely. Um, next question is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within a 50 year time frame? Within a 50 year time frame? Um, I, so I think uh, I think the, the the modernization committee is a great blueprint for Congress needs to think about it how how it thinks. Um, Congress needs more systems for studying itself, um, uh, for taking seriously um, the act of legislating. And so um, I think process reform and setting up a system for, for iterative process reform. So this is not just a one and done, that it is a constant, re- and I don't know what that looks like, whether that looks like an entity on the inside or whether that um, looks like uh, an entity that mirrors the institution on the outside. Um, but what Congress, what is absolutely essential is, um, is a continual view and a continual reflection and, 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 a, and a taking stock um, of how the institution is functioning or not. Uh, but that, you know, uh, we need that level of honesty and accountability for the institution to improve itself. Right, next question is, uh, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? So, you know, I think the um, there's a New York New Yorker piece from 2010 called "As the World Burns," and it's about um, it's about the the ill fate of uh, my boss's then uh, climate legislation, which they called Waxman Markey, um, and uh, the attempt to get it done in the Senate. And I think what that um, which was uh, John Kerry and um, uh, Joe Lieberman and uh, Lindsey Graham. And I think what that piece um, really illustrates is that at the end of the day, things get done or they don't based on human beings. And that there are good legislators and there are okay legislators and there are mediocre legislators. We talked about understanding effectiveness of the institution and the metrics that we have for effectiveness right now. And they are, they are wholly inadequate. And, um, and I think, frankly, if you, <laughs> um, I think, frankly, if you, if you read that piece and you, and you see both, I mean, I think it's a wonderful view into the staffer perspective on how things work and how they don't. Um, it's a, it's an excellent window into what makes for and what doesn't make for a good, a good legislator. And, um, uh, so I, I think that's required reading. And it was, although I lived it, it was extraordinarily reinforcing for me um, to understand why we didn't end up getting this done um, and that it was driven and it, and it was frankly a handful of in, individuals not doing a great job. Last question is really about your plans. You know, uh, what do you have in the hopper you know, coming in the next few years and uh, where do you want to focus your energy? Yes. Um, well, our goal, I think, as, as I said at the outset, is to get uh, 60, 60 technologists working in Congress and senior staffing roles and to build a pipeline and convert our fellows into those roles to upskill the institution. Um, I think that as we, and we're on track to do that, we've had 20 fellows, we had 16 fellows last year, 20 fellows this year, we'll have 24 next year and maintain that through 2026 to reach that level of 60, 60. Um, as, we, as we look ahead, I, 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 
I, I'm, I'm interested in two things. One is um, uh, applying this model to um, other, uh, principally the states, but other places that, that need technical expertise. And I think in states, state legislatures um, and states attorneys generals are doing the bulk of the, frankly, the legislating um, when it comes to tech policy and, and are largely entirely absent of tech expertise, um, to be frank. I think the other piece that, that is, is, is so important um, is the process reform side. And in particular, how do we engage staff coming out of Congress that understand the institution to um, build solutions uh, to, solving, um, to solving its problems? So um, in my view, what, what makes tech successful is not tech. What has made the tech sector successful is not tech. It, it is the infrastructure in which they have built around the sector because the leaders in, in, in tech, whether they be you know, Mark Andreessen or Peter Thiel or uh, Elon Musk um, or uh, Steve Jobs, you know, these folks came out of infrastructure and um, the institutions in which they involved fund infrastructure. There are accelerators and incubators um, and, and funding and mentorship. And that just does not, it, it doesn't exist at all in the congressional reform, reform community. So bigger picture, uh, we need to build that. And, and, and so that's where I hope that uh, ultimately I can spend, spend my time. Awesome. Well, Travis, thank you so much for your time and uh, really admire what you're doing and look forward to seeing what's coming. My pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Matthew. It's been a pleasure.